0: frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious Grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today.
1: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
2: This is the John Fuglesang Podcast.
0: The FBI reported 161 hate crimes against Asian Americans in 2019. And then came COVID, featuring a president who said China virus and Kung Flu to detract from his own lies and fuck-ups. So the next year, they went up from 161 hate crimes against Asians reported to 279, Anti-Asian hate crimes increased more than 73% in 2020, according to the FBI. Um, and they've compiled data by the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism. And it shows that anti-Asian hate crime then increased 339% into 2021, exponentially every year, especially New York, San Francisco and L.A., surpassing the record numbers they set In 2020, New York had a really drastic rise from 30 to 133 anti-Asian hate crimes. That's a 343% increase. San Francisco, LA had it too. And this week alone, family and friends gathered in Prospect Park to honor Christina Yuna Lee, who was murdered in her home in Lower Manhattan just a couple of months ago. We're still reeling from the man who is accused of fatally shoving uh, Michelle go into an oncoming NYC subway train who was then deemed unfit for trial. And it's only been a year since the Atlanta spa shooting where eight people were murdered, six of whom were Asian women. Now it's easy to blame this on COVID related bias, Trump's xenophobic rhetoric, but the fact is that dehumanization of Asian communities and sexual violence against Asian women go back centuries and our society has been complicit on pretty much every level. So I was so excited to read Panthea Lee's amazing cover story in The Nation. It's called Sex, Death, and Empire, The Roots of Violence Against Asian Women. And it traces a line from our earliest American empire in the Philippines to Japan, Korea, Vietnam, to the anti-Asian violence at home and how it has always been permitted, condoned, and sometimes encouraged. This is one of the most powerful pieces I've read all year. It's on the cover of the uh, May 9th, 2022 edition of The Nation. You have to read it. It is a great pleasure to welcome Panthea Lee to the show. Hello.
3: Hi. Thank you so much, John. Really appreciate you having me.
0: I really appreciate your piece. I I sat down to read it and I thought, well, I'm going to know everything in this piece. I know about these murders. I cover this on the show all the time. I talk with journalists Mm -hmm. about anti Asian hatred and, and how these numbers went up. And I'll be honest, I even knew a bit about the deplorable history of our military in Japan, mm-hmm. in the Philippines, but nothing mm-hmm. prepared me for not just how political your piece is, but how deeply personal this piece is as well. Can you tell me what it was that inspired you to write such a piece? Because its I love The Nation, but it's rare I read anything that is as as deeply personal um, and yet uh, as scorchingly political and historical.
3: Mm. Thank you for reading it. Um, yeah, you know, I think you gave us all the stats, and I think that the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes, obviously, um, through the pandemic, really shook me um, at a really deep level. And I think so much of it, you know, at first, it was, I was really reeling from the fact that so many of these uh, attacks were against our elders. I feel like in every culture, we you know, you don't touch the elders. Um, yeah. Gangs yeah. know not to, you know, mess with old people. And yet, you know, um, I think when there was that 89-year-old, woman that was set on fire in Bensonhurst. Um, I just I kept running through my thoughts, you know, all like, why do they think it's OK to touch our elders? Why is that? And I think for me, you know, it, I I just kept coming around to sort of different theories. And all I could really sort of come back to was the fact that. To justify all the U.S.-led wars in Asia, we had to dehumanize um, Asians and Asian folks in particular to be able to um, enable that amount of killing, that amount of hatred. Um, and, you know, so so, so, I, so I started thinking about that. And then, you know, when Christina Yuna Lee was murdered, um, basically, I had literally just walked by her apartment the day before. And um, so that really just shook me. And the fact that the media coverage of it really refrain from exploring the significance of race um, in the in her in her murder. Um, It just it it felt like cultural gaslighting. Um, It felt like. Right. It it just said, you know, unnamed authorities, you know, do not know the significance of uh, Christina's race in this. And so unnamed authorities and I just thought, This country was founded on settler colonialism and genocide and America's continued development is really enabled by Western imperialism and the suffering um, that uh, that builds this all around the world. And so fear mongering against racialized communities is as old as America itself. Um, But, you know, and then I think yellow peril in particular though is not something that we talk a lot about. Right. As you said, everyone was blaming it on Trump on his xenophobic rhetoric, um, and we were having pretty ahistorical historical conversations around it. You know, right. the reality is Yellow Peril um, started uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II late 19th century. Germany really used this to encourage European empires to invade um, and colonize China. Um, and my reading of it is because that there was a fear of um, almost like, you know, the the amount of uh, the amount of people in Asia sort of coming to colonize and enslave them as they had done to um, Africans. And so this fear of the yellow races overtaking the white races is. It is it is a very long legacy and is something we see the echoes and the descendants of that in the great replacement theory that white supremacist shooters are using today. So there's a lot of it that I was trying to work through.
0: It's as prevalent as the model minority myth, which um we don't need to get into, but I, I think Donald Trump does get some particular credit for giving permission for people mm. to engage to indulge yeah. in this. I think he he gave a lot of people permission to indulge in their worst parts of their id. But to your point yeah. about media gaslighting, I was really shocked. You lay it out in this piece. I mean, Christina Lee's murder. CNN, it's not clear whether Lee's race or ethnicity played a role in the attack. New York mm. Times. The authorities have not determined that Ms. Lee was targeted because of her ethnicity. I mean, you you point out that as a journalist, you understand why the media are reluctant to go beyond what police say. But when everyone knows that race did have a role in it, yeah, mm-hmm. it can totally feel like cultural gaslighting. Like mm-hmm. they'll they'll say on day one that race had a role in the murders in Buffalo, but why right. are they holding back here?
3: Right. Um, yeah, I think it was it was really. Uh, I think there was a lot of pain that I had to sort of excavate um, and get through and also I think um, on calls and in gatherings with other Asian women um, it was really painful you know women would say well she did everything right she didn't take the subway she took a car home um at the at the time you know uh, we were I remember being on a call and it was around Valentine's day so women were sharing the coupon code v day 15. Mm -hmm. Um, for uh, 15% off birdie, a personal safety alarm. And I just thought, given the long legacy of institutional and state-sanctioned violence that we have seen, surely we should not be expected to look for individual solutions for our safety. But because we're not having a cultural conversation around the long legacies of military and institutionalized um, violence, you know, supported by Hollywood and supported by the entertainment industry, because we're not having that conversation, we're then not also talking about institutional responses and policy responses and leaving women and communities to fend for themselves.
0: Is it true? That from March of 2020 to December of 2021, you know, the first real year of COVID, is it true that that hate incidents against Asian American and Pacific Islander women were double the hate incidents reported against AIPI men?
3: Uh, yes, they were almost exactly double, um, and um, and we also think that those figures are underreported. There's obviously a lot of different sort of barriers and cultural norms around who reports and whatnot. So those are the figures that we have from Stop AAPI Hate. Um, th-
0: your piece in The Nation is astonishing because I, I, it, it resonated with me personally. When I was um, in college, my girlfriend was Filipina mm-hmm. um, and she worked in the college radio station and, uh, and we were together for a couple of years. And um, when my best friends came back from the Marine Corps, they used an expression I had never heard before. In relation to the woman I was dating. Known as LBFMs. I had mm-hmm. never in my life heard it. And uh, and I heard it from a Marine. So imagine my <laughs> shock and recollection. In reading your piece in The Nation. To mm-hmm. learn that that phrase can be traced back over a hundred years. To the Philippine-American War. Th- yeah. This piece of yours is not just about the threat that Asian women face today. It's about the incredible historical precedent and historical permission that has been given to men to abuse and sexually mistreat Asian American, Asian women uh, and Pacific Islander women as well.
3: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, Little Brown fucking machines powered by rice um, is the phrase that traces back to um, the Philippine American war. And I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with this history, but basically uh, the war devastated the country and the U.S. military then created a system of officially managed sex work, taking advantage of women who were now economically desperate, needed new forms of economic survival and justifying it as a matter of military and imperial necessity. And so the thinking was that G.I.s, you know, these sexually aggressive men would need a sexual outlet in the military theater. So we need to get that set up for them. And we need to manage and inspect women so they don't get sick. So the U.S. government basically said this is a practical matter of manpower and of empire. We need our men healthy and able to fight. And so we are going to recruit women, test them for disease, tag them like pets, reinforcing their status as less than human. And this less than humanness continues Um, by the end of U.S. colonization in the Philippines, about 50 years later. This ideology had spread across Asia, laying the foundation for the region's infamous sex entertainment and trafficking industry. So LBFM, now um, you see it on T-shirts, yeah. on bags in um, tourist areas, particularly military tourist areas um, yeah. in Southeast Asia.
0: It just it stunned me that the first time I'd ever heard this term was from a Marine. Mm hmm. <laughs> And, yeah. and I was a teenager when I learned it. And th- that war lasted several years. It devastated the Philippines and it's barely taught in this country. Yeah. But what happened to Filipina women is never taught in this country.
3: No. Um, I interviewed a filmmaker and cultural scholar, um, Dr. Celine Piranes-Shimizu, Sh- who wrote an incredible book called The Hypersexuality of Race. Um, where she interrogates these uh, these cultural stereotypes and where they come from and looks at the history. You know, it's a collection of essays, but there's some really um, difficult essays to read as an Asian woman around the history of pornography in this country, um, around how Asian women have been portrayed. And then looking at, again, the I think I trace a lot of the history back to um, uh, the U.S. military, but that has been reinforced in Hollywood, um, through culture, uh, full metal jackets, Stanley Kubrick's film, um, uh, rap mm-hmm. songs, uh, books, our musicals, Miss Saigon, or theater. Um, it, it, it's sort of this, the two reinforce themselves to the point where these are the cultural waters that we swim in. Um, I think m- Asian women I know will uh, sometimes roll their eyes at, you know, Yellow Fever, um, the... Yeah preference some. Men have for uh, for Asian women, because it feels they 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 feel powerless in, in the face of like what to even sort of do about that. There's this long history of misogyny and um, racialized uh, exploitation that feels impossible to fight against. And so in the piece, I also talk about um, an Instagram account that actually catalogs um, a lot of instances of yellow fever.
0: Yeah, this presumed subservience that has been fetishized by so many mediocre men. Um, The Kubrick film was to show the horrors that our war had wreaked on Vietnamese society. And Mm -hmm. this one line from this tragic character of a teenage prostitute wound up just being turned into a joke for pop songs. But I, I will tell you, I had heard in the past of uh, the japanese comfort stations mm-hmm. um i didn't know that they had really taken some inspiration from that from what america had did in the philippines and i didn't really know how culpable america was with the comfort mm-hmm. stations for those who, who don't know can you explain the sexual conscription of women
3: yeah i mean and just uh to be fair, um, the U.S. also uh, took its playbook from the British and the Spanish. Yes, like, you're right. you know, this is this is a feature of empire. Um, this is what Western empire does. Um, and so basically what happened is, you know, at the end of World War Two to prevent rape by the Allied troops on its general population, uh, Japan and the U.S. worked together to establish a network of brothels where 55,000 women were recruited to service up to 60 GIs a day. Um, and a lot of the recruitment... I'm, I'm for sorry,
0: this, I'm sorry, each, right? Yeah, 55,000 women had to service 60 American soldiers a day each.
3: Each, yeah. 60 men a day. There were many women who committed suicide in the early days of the... Opening of these stations, um, a lot of their recruitment methods did not were sort of woolly in terms of um, what this was really about. Um, and um, and after these stations were closed, um, I forget the exact figure, but I think there was about three hundred or so rapes a day um, once these had closed down. Men just thought it was okay to go around the countryside raping women. Um, and so these were the comfort stations that were set up in Japan. Um, but then, you know, after it entered the Korean War, um, after about a year afterwards, the U.S. military decided that this was a great idea. That's let's just continue it and set up a system um, officially called R and R. So officially, officially called rest and recuperation that, you know, gave soldiers breaks from active duty to. And so they started shuttling them to Japan daily. Um, but soldiers slang for r and um, rock and ruin, rape and run. Show us what many ended up doing with this time. So, you know, this network of comfort stations, of officially managed brothels to spread. And about a year after the U.S. entered Vietnam, Senator Fulbright declared Saigon has become an American brothel. Um, by the time the U.S. left there, they had left about half a million prostitutes in the country.
0: And, and this is, by the way, our tax dollars paid for this. Yep. this is only 70 years ago. Yep. And these stations were in the Philippines, Korea, Vietnam, Taiwan, Thailand, Malaysia and Singapore. Um, eighty-five mm-hmm. percent of the GI surveyed reported they had been with at least one prostitute. Most of yep. whom we can presume were forced into this sex work.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yep, absolutely. And you know, R and R still exists today. Um, UN agencies, you know, give folks break from uh, hardship stations. International NGOs. Um, I have worked for some of these. Um, the British Australian militaries. Still give soldiers R and R, and I think I, I was, you know, poking around Reddit forums. Um, I was trying to see, you know, what folks and there's still active Reddit threads around what you do. And to be fair, not I, I'm not by any means implying that everybody uses their R and R time for sex tourism, um, but much of what I found, uh, much of both what I've seen, my lived experience working across the majority world, and poking around uh, military forums. Um, Indicate yeah, the system is alive and well, and many men um, still continue to go. You know, Thailand's very popular for sex. Tour, you know, it, it's just the yeah. system that yeah. continues today. Um, I won't repeat all the language that I saw, but it is um, deeply disturbing.
0: Yeah, I, I thought. I will admit, I thought I was read right up on this until I got to your piece. I mean, this this R and R info Reddit thread that you mentioned was from a U.S. Army Reddit forum, and it was in 2018. And mm-hmm. the response that got the most votes was uh, a very vulgar one directly about sex tourism and this is not just exploitation of women's bodies it's it's a violent exploitation of poverty because absolutely what cost the, the for you point out for the price of a hamburger for a guy would give a female sex worker the ability to feed her family for a week
3: yeah it's um I've, uh, I've worked in a lot of developing countries. We call them, quote, unquote, developing. Um, and I've, uh, you know, been in places where men go for R&R. Uh, there is a very particular swagger that men, that I've observed. I'm an ethnographer by training. Um, there yeah. is a very distinct swagger of men um, when you can walk into a village, when you can walk into a bar and know that you are on the winning end of global inequality and be able to dangle that in front of folks. Um, It is, I find it vile. I find it disgusting. Um, And yet I have witnessed this time and again.
0: I find it intensely mediocre uh, thing that men do. How did you adapt personally in these situations when you were in certain communities, you, you, I think the most powerful thing about the piece is, is when you share your own experience and how you try to deflect this sort of unwanted attention that that's, that's mm-hmm. a vulgar phrase. It's really this, this presumed entitlement mm-hmm. that these males
2: have.
3: Um. Yeah. I think for a long time, I, um, when I was living in Asia, and um, working across Asia and other countries, uh, I I cut my hair off. Um, I started dressing in, like, just really baggy clothes. I wanted to look like a boy. Um, I wanted to look like, um, I, like I wanted to hide my body. I wanted to um, look like anything but a plaything for Western men. Um, and it took me, like, it, I had to do a lot of work um, to actually be comfortable back in my own body.
0: So. 14 months ago, a 21 year old, again, it's young, young guys with guns, 21 year old in Atlanta. I don't say mm-hmm. his name, killed eight people, six of whom were Asian women, uh, at mm-hmm. three massage parlors in Atlanta. And it got a lot of attention at the time. He gave his sex addiction as the reason for his actions. Um, yeah. but you pointed out something that was just so powerful for me. We, we all mocked the chief of the cherokee county's sheriff's office when he said it was a really bad day for him and this is what he did mm. and that person was rightfully mocked but you actually did the google search and you name all the women who were murdered and i, I was so surprised to learn that it, the google search for atlanta spa shooting bad day got about two and a half million results mm. what did you find when you tried to find the coverage and mention of the names of the women who were murdered
3: yeah, I ended up doing individual searches for Atlanta spa shooting plus the name of each victim and uh, each that each returned between 10,000 and 21,000 results. So what I ended up doing was trying to, like I was I, I couldn't even comprehend that, first of all, like the fact that, you know, we had a field day, like everyone was like mocking student bad day and understandably how flipped that was. But I just thought surely... <laughs> surely like the collective weight of these women's lives is worth more than the commentary that we had about his bad day and granted this was only english language media but once i added it up um six of their lives in aggregate um noting that many articles would repeat all their names so this is a bad you know so this is actually under reporting it but six of their lives in terms of google results Um, were worth about 3.7% of the discussion that we devoted to the shooter's bad day. And I had to really sit with that and what that meant around how we valued and treated these women's lives.
0: I have to tell you, this piece is one of my favorite things I've ever read in the nation. And it's so powerful. And again, for the writing, I mean... You weave the personal and the historical so beautifully. And when you talk about how you and your partner have had to discuss what your plan A, B, and C would be Mm. if a demented person threw you onto the train tracks, it's the sort of thing that most of us don't ever read. Uh, But I do want to, with our remaining time, ask Mm. you about healing and to Mm. ask you about (laughs) positive action that can be taken. And what you've learned in your research and in your own personal study and, and journey about healing from this kind of trauma?
3: Yeah. Um, thank you for the question. I think that, I think right now a lot of us are actually struck, struggling with an immense amount of grief that we don't know how to process. Um, my ex, My experience of it is that many of us just end up dissociating rather than actually being able to uh, work through the grief because we don't really have containers we don't really have spaces we don't know what to do other than to start doing things you know buy the mace do the thing yell on social media whatever it is um and so i've been thinking about the potential and the impact of ritual and of art and of community to help us heal because capitalism likes to tell us that healing happens through experiences that are packaged, bought, and sold, you know, go to the spa, go and have a night night out, do like go on a vacation. But the reality is that healing happens in community, you know, um, as bell hooks reminds us rarely, if ever, are any of us healed in isolation, healing is an act of communion. And so I've been, um, I work, I I do work in movement spaces as as a mediator, as a facilitator. um, And there's so much unaddressed trauma that I think we're throwing at one another. And so I've been really committing to thinking about both how to create spaces and how to find spaces for us to come together uh, to be able to heal. Um, And there I want to lift up um, a really incredible show that actually just opened at the lincoln center um which i have feelings about but it's at the lincoln center and it's by a thai indonesian american artist named amanda ping boripakia whose work has been really a symbol of asian resilience and resistance over the last two years and they're a set of four rituals that are inspired by uh thai healing traditions and i've had the honor of being able to host um she's been hosting these rituals and i've had the honor of hosting a community conversation there on grief and what it's just made me realize is we really need these spaces to come and process and talk because otherwise um, we're disintegrating we're crumbling um, and it's only if we are able to move through these emotions to give them space to have other folks bear witness to our suffering and our pain. We can't fix everything that's going on right now, but we can't. what we can do is hold each other and affirm one another um, and bear witness. And that helps our load be a little bit lighter and that helps us hold on to the hope that we need to keep going.
0: How can our listeners follow you, Panthea, and keep up with your work?
3: Um, I am on uh, Twitter at Panthea Lee um and also just on my website um and yeah i um, looking forward to hearing any thoughts or folks uh thoughts or questions folks have from the from the piece
0: thank you so much the peace in the nation again is sex death and empire the roots of violence against asian women it's one of the best things i've read all year please come back and see us again our door is always open
3: thank you so much john really really Great grateful up.
0: and we'll be right back What began in Europe in the 17th century after wars over religion and nationalism has evolved into a system we call liberalism, a system for governing diverse societies, grounded by fundamental principles about equality and and the rule of law, a system that grants people rights to speech, to association, usually to self-rule. Liberalism emphasizes the rights of individuals to pursue their own kinds of happiness, free from government encroaching on them. And it's no secret that liberalism as... The world has come to define it hasn't always lived up to its own ideals in america many people were denied equality before the law many people weren't counted as full human beings worthy of universal rights for centuries be they women african americans lgbtq people now in recent years neoliberals have made a new kind of cult out of their version of economic freedom the electoral college has proven to show how undemocratic we can be and authoritarianism is on the rise around the globe including here Presenting Peril to Freedoms and Democracy. Francis Fukuyama is one of our foremost experts on political science, economics, and public policy. He is the Olivier Nominelli Senior Fellow at Stanford University. He's previously taught uh, at Johns Hopkins University and George Mason University. He is, of course, the author of America at the Crossroads, uh, Identity, Political Order, and Political Decay. Um, His new book, however, is something that I wish every conservative and liberal, whatever those words mean, could own. It is liberalism and its discontents, and it defends liberalism as a doctrine to show why it's worth fighting for, how it leads to a better way of life, what the threats to it are, and how we got here. It is a great pleasure to welcome Professor Francis Fukuyama to the show. Hello, sir. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. I I must begin with a question I know you are asked constantly, I'm sure, on this book tour, if you can give us the definition of what you mean by liberalism, because in America, we have to do this. In America, it's a euphemism (laughs) for the left. In Europe, it's a euphemism for the center-right. How do you define the term, sir?
2: Well, I don't use either of those definitions. Uh, To me, liberalism is uh, uh, a means of limiting the power of the state through a rule of law and through constitutional checks and balances. Uh, It's a doctrine that basically believes that all human beings under the skin are moral creatures that have uh the right to you know make their own decisions about life and it is law that protects the rights of those individuals as you uh as you indicated i don't think that it is necessarily associated with a particular economic ideology liberals Correct. do like property rights and it has been associated with a market economy but not necessarily with the kind of extreme form of globalization uh that um developed after the 1980s that is sometimes called neoliberalism which i think Mm -hmm. is a you know a kind of worship of the market and a denigration of the state i think classical liberals were uh, you know, they they were reconciled to having a state because you can't have law. Uh, you can't have the enforcement of people's rights if you don't have a state that's there to do that sort of thing. So that's my meaning of it. And it means that it applies to uh, a, a wide range of countries, even social democratic ones like Sweden or Denmark or uh, or classically, you know, the United States, Japan, other countries that have smaller uh, state sectors.
0: Uh, you make me think about when uh, three years ago they were asked donald trump about the threat to the liberal order and he thought they were talking about politics in san francisco so i thank (laughs) you for that uh measured definition as you refer in the book you say i refer to the doctrine that argued for the limitation of the powers of governments through law and ultimately constitutions creating institutions protecting the rights of individuals living under their jurisdiction and the liberal world order is, as you outlined in the book, is what has led to the greatest reduction of poverty. It has led to the greatest global output in history, but it's still
2: relatively a recent trend, isn't it, sir? You know, liberalism got its start in the middle of the 17th century when Europe had been fighting for 150 years over religion. Protestants and Catholics were slaughtering each other, and the early liberals got up and said, well, hey, supposing that we don't uh, force people to follow a particular religious doctrine, supposing we tolerate a diversity of doctrines because we've been killing each other, uh, insisting on a certain one way of one vision of the good life, uh, maybe protecting life itself uh, is more important. Uh, And that's really where liberalism gets its start, this limitation of government. The government shouldn't tell you what, religious, uh, what religion to profess, it gets challenged again in the 19th and 20th centuries by nationalism, where people want to say, well, your ethnicity determines, you know, uh, how you should uh, behave, how you should uh, uh, regard tradition and so forth, and that leads to two world wars and again uh, to a really disastrous outcome. And so the doctrine, you know, keeps coming back because people are violent, they tend to... Um, You know, uh, fall into dictatorships and liberalism at that point seems like a pretty good alternative because it does prize peace and prosperity in many ways.
0: Indeed. And I want to point out your book is a defense of liberalism, but it's it's not necessarily a defense of democracy, correct?
2: Well, that's right. I think liberalism has been allied to democracy. So liberalism is really the law, the the rule of law part of the the bargain. Uh, Democracy is really about elections and rule by the people. Uh, The two tend to go together because one of the rights that we want protected is our right to participate and have a share in self-government but we do have regimes that are liberal and not democratic so that would be you know maybe singapore that doesn't really hold free and fair elections but they've got a pretty decent rule of law but you can also have illiberal democracies. So right. Mr. Orban in Hungary says that that's what he's trying to create. He's legitimately elected, but he's not going to respect limits on his power. You know, not the courts, not the press, uh, not any of the uh, checks and balances that should exist in a real liberal regime. Uh, so the two can be split uh, in, in, in different ways.
0: In the book, you you go through three basic reasons why liberalism is good and you outline them as the pragmatic, the moral and the economic. And I wonder if you could briefly unpack that for us, sir.
2: The pragmatic part I've talked about already, that liberalism is fundamentally a means of governing diverse societies. You know, back in the 17th century, that diversity was religious. In the early 20th century, it was based on national identity. Um, There are many ways in which people can disagree with each other and fight one another. And in a liberal society, you basically agree to tolerate people that are different from uh from yourself and so it's a it's a way of keeping the peace the second important argument is a moral argument that has to do with human autonomy that is to say our uh our existence as moral creatures that can make you know decisions on our own sometimes they are practical decisions you know what occupation am i going to follow who am i going to marry where am i going to live but you know in a deeper sense it's also the uh, moral ability to distinguish between right and wrong, you know, to to make uh, moral choices and that ability to choose that basic. And, and, and honestly, I think that that's what distinguishes human beings from animals, is the fact yes. that they do have a sense of, uh, you know, of, of um, moral choice. Uh, that's the basic dignity that liberals believe makes us fundamentally equal under the skin. And then the final justification is really economic. Because among the rights that liberals like to protect are property rights and the right to transact and engage in commerce. And for that reason, liberal societies have always been uh, the richest and the fastest growing and the most prosperous in history. And I would say even even China, you know, when it started to reform its system, it actually incorporated certain liberal ideas so that, for example, instead of collective farms in 1978, uh, they started this household responsibility system where peasants were allowed to keep uh, the surplus that they had produced on their little uh, on their little farms, and that was a huge incentive. And you know, within four years, the output, the agricultural output of China, doubled, uh, which is a testimony, you know, to the importance of incentives. And so, in that respect, you know, China was following a liberal policy of protecting uh, people's property rights, and that's why. Uh, you know, they t- they tend to be very prosperous societies as well as free ones in a in a moral sense.
0: Yes, I wonder uh, how emperor for life she regards that choice in nineteen seventy eight today. But I, I, you you bring up a, a an excellent point. I mean, if liberalism is what protects the right to own property, and the right to transact, it would seem that our modern American conservatives turning that into a dirty word could ironically harm the exact kind of capitalistic life conservatives'
2: value. Well, that's right. I think what you're seeing is this big shift in uh, a lot of conservative politicians. You know, in in the days of Ronald Reagan, they were very pro-free market, pro-property rights. But now you're having this cultural fight that's being picked, you know, between, for example, Governor DeSantis and Disney, where The government now wants to insert itself into some of these cultural battles and tell uh, corporations what to do, take away their tax privileges and this sort of thing. And so there's been a really big shift in, you know, uh, conservative understandings of the proper role of the state.
0: Indeed, You, you do add in the book how left of center voters remain much more diverse in their political outlook. I agree. And that might present another irony. Is that, in itself, a bit of a threat to democracy that that in a big tent political spectrum, trying to raise all voices does, in fact, lack the organizational power of illiberal organized power?
2: Well, that's true. Um, you know the Democratic Party does have a lot of interest groups and subgroups and uh, and the like. Uh, I think that there's a kind of deeper problem with that diversity because, Some of it, you know, ends up being not very liberal in the end because it kind of uh, asserts, you know, the importance of group rights and the fact that we need to recognize people as members of groups rather than as individuals who have accomplished things as uh, as individuals. And that becomes a source of tension you know i think within the more progressive camp do we simply regard people you know uh, in a colorblind way or do we look at their race or ethnicity or gender uh, before we consider them uh, as individuals and that's a you know tension that's that's i think led to a lot of uh hard feelings you know in 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 the culture wars Can you give a specific example?
0: Because, I mean, I think of, like, say, the struggle for transgender rights fits into the paradigm of of civil rights struggles as part of a liberal society.
2: Well, it depends on how you interpret uh, these struggles. I would say that transgender rights, you know, the rights of gays and lesbians followed on the civil rights uh, movement as a liberal cause. Basically, you were mobilizing. Uh, marginalized groups. And in a democracy, that's what you have to do. You got to get people aware of their, uh, the fact that they're being, uh, uh, their rights are being taken away and they mobilize and they push for uh, equality, uh, a liberal equality, where they're treated just the same as everybody else. I think that you know, in certain progressive circles, that's evolved into something different where they attack the idea of individualism. And they say that it's actually our group identities that are the most important, you know, the most essential thing about us. And therefore, you know, when you're distributing resources or giving out jobs or, you know, um, uh, establishing preferences, that's the thing you ought to pay attention to and not so much the um, uh, you know, the, the, the accomplishments uh, of an individual or the individual's character. And that's the point at which identity politics ceases being a liberal uh, doctrine and, and, and turns a little bit illiberal. Uh, plus, you know, there is a, there's a lot of intolerance on both sides of the spectrum uh, uh, that immediately, you know, uh, violates uh, other liberal principles about freedom of speech and about due process and the like.
0: Thirty years ago, in the fall of the Soviet Union, when you famously wrote your acclaimed The End of History and the Last Man, uh, you argue that liberal democracy was essentially the end point of mankind's ideological evolution. And as I'm reading your new book, As Russian Troops Are Massacring Ukraine, uh, it makes the work feel very urgent and timely. You remind us that Vladimir Putin has declared liberal democracy obsolete. That's not really an uncommon opinion, is it, even in liberal democracies?
2: Well, unfortunately, uh, liberalism has been attacked from both the right and the left. Uh, You have populist politicians, you know, Modi in India, Orban in Hungary, Donald Trump in the United States, that really don't like the liberal constraints on executive power. And that's part of the reason that a lot of those individuals admire Putin, because Putin really is a single dictator that doesn't have to worry about checks and balances or the legal constraints uh, and and the like. Uh, But I think, you know, there's also unhappiness on the left because liberalism being rule-based and very procedural tends to also be very slow. And it means that, you know, when you want to have, you know, let's say you want to put in place a health care, a set of protections for health care, or you want to, you know, take care of children with a tax credit or something. You've got to deal with a Congress where you can't get a majority. And, you know, that's very, very frustrating because it means that people are going to have to wait longer uh, for the kind of social justice that they, that, that they think is, is right. I, I do
0: believe your stated opinion 30 years ago that, that liberal democracy is the best kind of system we can hope to evolve into that we know of. But just as this progress is inevitable, is not this backsliding? inevitable as well
2: well you know history never goes in a straight line uh where you just yeah. stay on one course and it's a little bit better every single year it's just not the way it works uh you know in the 1930s we had a huge setback with the rise of rush you know communist russia and Ch- uh, and uh, nazi germany uh, that set liberalism back uh, uh, and almost killed it uh, but you know after the end of the war um, liberal societies flourished in europe north america many other parts of the world so i don't think that we should expect uh, continuous progress one of the problems i think in liberal societies is that after a while people tend to get uh, complacent you know they're living in a peaceful stable relatively prosperous society and they forget that the alternatives sometimes are violence dictatorship Uh, you know, uh, the kinds of horrendous uh, military conflicts that engulfed Europe in the first half of the 20th century. And having forgotten that, they, you know, um, and taking liberalism for granted, they have other aspirations or they, you know, they they feel other kinds of injustices. And I think that's kind of the state that the world is in right now.
0: Uh, As you point out, illiberal authoritarians, one of their hallmarks is they're not constrained by things like law. And I'm curious, do you think that Donald Trump's defeat and his retreat to Florida show that the checks and balances of the modern
2: liberal order were, in fact, able to withstand such a challenge? Well, yes and no. Uh, I think that in 2020, the checks and balances held up pretty well, especially the court system, you know, because Trump filed something like 70 different lawsuits challenging election results. And, you know, I I don't think a single one of them really succeeded. Certainly none of them were taken seriously by the courts as evidence of, you know, large scale fraud. Uh, So in that sense, I think it worked pretty well. What I think is really dangerous is not so well, a couple of things. I mean, obviously, January 6th, we're now learning as a result of the January 6th uh, committee Mm -hmm. was not just a, a, a rally that was spontaneous and somehow got out of hand. It really was planned, you know, from the start uh, as a way of overturning a legitimate uh, election. And I think that, you know, having f- failed to do that, then um, uh, there are Trump and other Republicans are, are going to have a second go at it. And for that reason, they're trying to change state level laws, you know, that uh, regarding the way that electoral votes will be counted the next time. And I think that's very dangerous. And so the checks and balances worked in 2020. They may not work in 2024.
0: Before I let you go, I do want to ask, how, to your view, has the pandemic affected the limits of this model of liberalism?
2: You know, you might have thought that a pandemic would make everybody actually pull together and reduce some of the polarization that exists in the United States. And in fact, it's had the opposite uh, impact uh, where, you know, mandates for vaccines and masks became a marker of your which political tribe you belong to. And I think it fed a lot of conspiracy theories about, you know, shadow elites that were pushing vaccines or various remedies behind the scenes and you know, ignoring the interests of ordinary people. And so I think it ended up not pulling us together, but worsening our polarization. Uh, and, you know, everybody's is, uh, as a result, has been put in a very sour uh, mood. Uh, and I think that's adding to the kind of uh, political climate, this very angry political climate that we face today. So then let me close with this question I've been dying to ask you, sir. What's giving you hope? Well, I guess, you know, I take this very long-term view about political systems, and I see that over time, you know, you have threats to a decent order, but there is a kind of longer, you know, so-called arc of history where over time, uh, society's gotten more compassionate, more equal. Uh, law has been, you know, more deeply entrenched. The trouble is it doesn't happen necessarily every year or in the next 10 years, sometimes you got to wait for it. But I do think that uh, in the long run, there is a uh, well, I I would put it, you know, if you want to see some hope, you just think about where desperate people that are trying to leave violent and unhappy, badly governed countries, where do they go to? They go to liberal countries, you know, because that's really the aspiration uh, of many people around the world. And I think it should give us a little bit of uh, confidence self-confidence you know that our kind of way of life is actually pretty desirable
0: and that's why this book um filled me with so much hope and so much wariness at the same time it's such a pleasure uh professor i've admired your work for a long time francis fukuyama is the author the book is liberalism and its discontents we are so grateful that you would take the time to join us thank you
2: thank you very much sean and we'll be right back
0: Let's get to your calls before uh, the next break. We'll be taking your calls all the way up until uh, midnight on the East Coast, so if we don't get to you now, I promise we'll get to you soon. Richard in Seattle. thank you.
5: Hey, John. Thanks for hi. taking my call. thank you well early yeah, hi. earlier, I was listening to Hannity and friends talk about ah. how the how there are good people on both sides of mass murder yeah <laughs> well, all and that I mental illness. Decided- but, you know, and I decided I had to call John and vent and and offer a solution. Okay. For this, for the gun violence. And what we're going to do, it, it, what we could do is we could take Republican logic and shove it up their ass. Okay. Nice. Alito has said, and we all know what he said, or what he's written here in the last week or two, that if it's not written in the Constitution, it's not your constitutional right. Yep. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say it's your right to buy and sell guns, rifles, or ammunition. True. So that's what we do. We ban the sell and buying of guns and ammunition for 60 years. Three generations. That's the only way out of this mess. And again, if you take a look at the, the Republican logic, they say that, Hey, gun legislation and tweaking these things, they're just, they don't work. And admittedly, they're probably just band aids. They work a little bit, but it isn't a solution. Banning guns and the sale of guns, I mean, uh, just banning the sale of guns and ammunition for 60 years, it doesn't touch the Second Amendment. Right. They can have their gun right and but i think 20, i think I,
0: but, but 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 this is planet earth and we both know that this would never pass like i love the idea in theory um i love chris rocks idea of just making every bullet cost 1000 dollars a piece and making the bullets too expensive sure. you know sure. I, but i'm like what what conceivably could we do i mean the filibuster kind of guarantees that nothing is going to come from our leaders i mean nothing unless we can find ways to creatively blackmail them all we're stuck with this. There will be more of these shootings well, because we, we, we as M- a M- culture, we, we yeah. white people, white people, conservative white people, who send these senators who are, represent a minority of the country, but these white people have decided that school massacres are acceptable.
5: Yeah. Well, they. they have Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity thing.
0: has decided that these that school massacres are acceptable.
5: I don't even. I'm sorry, brother. That. Look, in the real world, if we're going to talk about the real world, I think it all comes down to campaign finance reform. I agree with you. Get those lobbies out of there. That's probably the first step that will lead eventually. But I really like banning the sell of this stuff and using Alito's horseshit and throwing it back. In
0: <laughs> look, I like that, too. I like the idea of, um, you know, of registering every single gun in a country that's sold like it's guns. I sure. don't think we need to confiscate sure. anything, but I, it would be nice to know where all the guns are. And look, I would even support selling ar 15 still if everyone who bought one had to sign an affidavit And get three friends or three other people to sign the affidavit saying that if the gun was ever committed in a crime for any reason by anybody, that all four of those people who signed it would be legally held responsible for the crime. You get people to take responsibility when you buy one of these things, and it'll happen. The problem is that there's no— Yeah, if their name is on there. If their name is on on it
5: somewhere. Hey, I have one one more question for you, and and I don't know the answer to this. But we all know that Republicans are being bought and paid for. Uh, their, their campaigns are being financed by the NRA in a you know, large part or small part, whatever. How many Democrats are in that bag of deplorables? There's a few of them, but not
0: nearly as many. I mean, I've been looking through it. and Some Democrats have taken money from the NRA. Harry Reid took a lot of money from the NRA. You know, guns were really yeah. big in Nevada. But you look at the rating system, that's what I go by, and <laughs> Democrats yeah. are generally very low rated. <laughs> I mean, people went after Bernie Sanders for being too pro gun. He had a D rating from the NRA. So that's as good as it yeah. gets. So I'm I'm with you on there. But remember something. Loving the Second Amendment while hating the NRA is to me like loving Jesus and hating Westboro Baptist sure. Church. There are enough moral people yeah. in the world we could make this happen. Thank you so much for the call, yeah. Richard. You bet. Have a great night, thank you. Let me go to Mitch and Kent State. Hi, Mitch.
4: Hey, John. Thank you very much. I uh, just seen where Don McLean uh, declined. Uh, I, don't know. I guess he was invited to play there at the convention at the NRA. He convention. did,
0: huh? Friend yeah. of the show, Don McLean. I'm proud of him.
4: Yep. Uh, just uh, flashed on the screen, uh, John. Have you ever listen to Jim Rome, uh, sports guy in the morning? Uh an Interesting take this morning, and uh, he said how, you know, we all, you know, we, you know we're in shock and all when. There's man or there's uh, natural disasters and and people die in natural disasters and such, but this is a natural disaster. This is a man-made disaster. Yes, it is. So in, in the man's hands, and we're and they're the ones that created this, and it's it, you know it's on their hands. But uh, it is something that uh, you know. Of course, natural disasters you can't control because it's it, it you know it's all part of uh, you know just part of a uh, you know the planet. But uh, yeah. this is something. That, but this uh, is preventable.
0: You know, this is like climate change. This is a preventable disaster.
4: Exactly, uh, John. Also, uh, our DeWine, of course, signed the uh, concealed carry, and it's in effect here next month here in Ohio. So uh, you know, it's uh, no training, no checks, no problem, and uh, yeah. here, in Ohio, here in Ohio now. So uh, yeah, it's another another.
0: Uh, there you go. Going, i mean, <laughs> I feel great about uh, praising Mike. Look, Mike DeWine was responsible for five minutes during COVID nineteen. You know?
4: Yep. Yeah, yeah.
0: He gets credit uh, for that.
4: John, also, said, you know, the, the people you know, they're they, they all concerned about their, their Second Amendment rights. What about the right to go shopping, the right to attend a concert, the right to exactly. work, the right to go to school? You know, who's angry
0: about Their the right life? to life. Their right exactly. to yeah. life. Exactly right. There you
4: go. You got, you got it,
0: man. Thank and, you, Mitch.
4: Uh, God bless George Harrison. Give me love. Give me peace on earth today.
0: Oh, so that was released on this date? In
4: 1973.
0: Look, you out me once again, bitch. I appreciate it.